Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome today to our Bible study. Today we're going to be in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be talking about a pretty familiar parable. It's called the parable of the lost sheep. Let me pray and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your word, be able to take a look at the words of Jesus in red. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go ahead and go ahead and read uh, the parable and then we'll start uh, digging into it. So this is uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Then all of the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. You know, this likely is a familiar uh, parable. Jesus often spoke of sheep. Jesus was called the Good Shepherd. So we're going to go back to this parable, and we're going to take a look at it with fresh eyes. Uh, we're going to be break, I'll be breaking up this parable into three divisions. Uh, the first one is the Pharisee's complaint. Then secondly, the parable of the lost sheep. And then thirdly, the joy in heaven. Uh, these parables allow us to, to see Jesus, not from the backdrop of a miracle worker or an amazing teacher, or even one that could feed 5,000 with five loaves and a couple of fish. Jesus reveals the God not only of the righteous, not only of the Jews, but the God who will go to great lengths for the sinner, any sinner. This is what Jesus wanted to communicate in the parable of this lost sheep. I've read the seven verses of this teaching today. I want to get right into it. However, I, I want to, first of all, dismiss as kindly as possible uh, the all-too-easy adaptation of this parable. In this adaptation, we identify with Jesus and direct the story towards us. So that as Christians, we need to be more like Jesus and care for the one, not just the 99. In this adaptation or application, since God has told us to go out into the world, we need to spend time with the sinners and all of those who are lost. We need to embrace them, bring them to our churches, and be like the shepherd in this parable. Well. This can be an application. There's, parables have many, many applications. Uh, but typically, I would say that parables only have one true meaning. Uh, so if this parable encourages you in any way to be other-centered, to care for the one that gets away, that's fine. Uh, but you'll see as we go on that there's actually a, a much better meaning. Uh, so let's get back to the parable. It, uh, it is the one of, this parable is one of three very related pa uh, parables, all in the same chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And they're similar in many respects. Uh, this first one is called the, the one, the 99 and one, or the one lost sheep. Then there's the lost coin. And then the last one is very familiar. It's called the lost son. You probably know it as the parable of the prodigal son. 
Jesus summarizes this teaching later in the Gospels when he says this in Luke chapter 19. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So let's start by talking about the parables. Um, I think if you've been with me for any amount of time, you know that I, I teach the parables often. We, t we start with the parable number one and we keep going right through. Uh, there's a total of 46 parables in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, depending on how you count. A parable is basically an earthly story with a, a heavenly message. Uh, Jesus often spoke in parables and, and used parable as one of his primary teaching tools. As a result, we can learn much from these parables. I, I like them. As I even said in my prayer, these are the words of Jesus in red. In the Gospel of Matthew, his disciples asked the obvious question, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus' answer to the question is actually quite revealing. And this is what he says. Jesus says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then Jesus continues. He says, and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard to hear, and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. And that's Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 and 15. You see, Jesus is actually telling them that while many can hear, very few actually listen. Uh, maybe you aren't surprised. Um, I, I shouldn't be surprised. My wife Carol often tells me that I'm not paying attention to her. I'm not listening to her. And, and to my defense, I basically feel that I'm preoccupied or, or doing something important, but often I'm just watching TV and I, I mumble a response and she knows right away that I'm really not listening. The people that Isaiah is talking about, however, are, are different. Uh, they're the ones that have grown dull of hearing. Their heart has gone cold. Isaiah said, for the heart of this people has grown, grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed. Uh, it was this unwillingness on the part of these people to receive Jesus' message in the kingdom. And that was the reason Jesus taught in parables. Uh, the truths of the kingdom of God were heard by them, but not understood. It, it wasn't because God was hiding the truth from them. It, it, it was because they really didn't want to hear. This points to a greater truth and we'll develop it further as we go through this parable today. Jesus gave people every chance, every chance to accept his message of hope and salvation. This is the gospel. His ministry was attested to by, by miracles, by, by wonderful signs. He offered the proper credentials as the Messiah, yet still the people did not believe him. The realities of the kingdom, therefore, were not theirs to, to know, to understand. The people who believed in Jesus as a Messiah would understand the parables. They would comprehend the great truths of the kingdom of God. Now, here's an even greater truth. We'll go back to the same words of Jesus. He said, it has been given to you, to you, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So, so what is a mystery? And, and I've talked about this before. A mystery is something that, uh, that has been unknown, but now it's been revealed. Uh, we watch a, a murder mystery, or maybe you read a, a mystery book, a murder mystery book of some kind. Uh, we and, my wife and I enjoy watching Murder, She Wrote. Uh, you know the story. That's with Jessica Fletcher who's a down-to-earth, middle-aged widow. She, she ferrets out criminals in a place called Cabot Cove, Maine. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with the, the show, Cabot Cove 
um, is this amazing little town, uh, kind of Disney-esque in its approach, almost like Celebration Florida. It's got clapboard cottages, it's got this beautiful harbor. However, it has uh, a problem. You see, in reality, if, if Cove actually existed, um, it would probably be called the murder capital of the world. You see, in the 12 seasons of Murder, She Wrote, amateur detective Jessica Fletcher encountered a total of 274 murders in this little town of just 3,500. That gives it an annual murder rate of 14,900 per, per 100,000, or 10 times higher than Orlando, five times higher than a city like Detroit. So let's go back to this idea of a mystery. A mystery is something hidden that actually has now been revealed to us so that we would understand it. Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So these, these mysteries are about the kingdom, and a kingdom requires a king. The United States is not a kingdom. We don't have a king. We have a president. But in the kingdom of God, we have King Jesus, who not only died for our sins and rose and ascended in heaven, but is coming back again as the king of glory. So let's get into this particular par parable. Uh, I, I mentioned before there's going to be three specific divisions in this parable. And this first one is the Pharisees' complaint. The Pharisees' complaint. The setting of this parable involves a, a crowd. It says that there are multitudes of tax collectors and sinners. This is what it says. Verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. That all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So who are these tax collectors and sinners? Uh, this is related to one very specific and one very broad category. We'll take the broad category first, which is the sinners. In the context of this gospel, and actually in other places in the New Testament, sinners does not just refer to immoral people like we would know them. People that are, uh, are thieves or murderers that would attack you at night, that would hold you up. No. To, to the religious Jews, it had a much wider application. The word sinner refers to anyone who violates any part of the law, particularly regarding the numerous restrictions on working on the Sabbath, one of the things that they accused Jesus of. But also any occupation or work. You could be a sinner if you had any occupation or work that the Sadducees or the Pharisees deemed to be incompatible with some portion of the law. For example, all occupations that interface with the Gentiles. As Gentiles were not Jews, they were considered unclean. And if you spent time with people that were unclean, you also were unclean or a sinner. Uh, there were many occupations that were included in this list, for example. Uh, really, it's a never-ending list. Uh, innkeepers, fishermen that sold their fish in an open market, physicians, soldiers, even shepherds. That's right. So, some scholars believe that the reason the shepherds were on the list were basically for, for two reasons. Number one, they ne needed to tend for the sheep often, including on the Sabbath. And as a result, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. Uh, the other thing was is that the shepherds believed in free range. Uh, they wanted their sheep to be able to just kind of roam around the hills, often violating private property. Uh, so as a result, they were considered lawbreakers, and because they were lawbreakers, they were considered sinners. Perhaps it's time to take a look at this parable in light of what we consider to be contagious diseases. If you get too close to anyone that's contaminated, for example, you also are considered contaminated, and you might need to be quarantined for 14 days. 
So that's the broad category, the, the sinners. Now let's get to the other category, the tax collectors. Well, the tax collectors, you have to remember, the Jewish people at the time were under Roman occupation. And what the Romans did when they came in and occupied, now remember, the Romans were brutal themselves. But what the Romans did is they needed to collect revenue. They needed to collect taxes from the people. So what they would do is they would encourage some fellows, usually Jewish people, that would know where the rich people were and all of the commerce that was going on. And they would put them in charge of, of collecting the various taxes. And there were many taxes for, for Rome. So the people, these, ta these tax collectors, were allowed to really ex extract as much as they possibly could from the people, give to Rome what was to Rome, and then keep what was left over. You know, as a result, the people had a very special kind of sinner class called tax collectors. Uh, the Pharisees taught that the Jews were not to have any contact with the tax collectors or these sinners, and particularly not to break bread. This is what Jesus is doing, to have dinner with them. This was one of the reasons why the Pharisees were complaining, we see in verse 2. They were, however, not just grumbling about Jesus interfacing with tax collectors and sinners. They don't like Jesus. They look for any possible reason to dismiss Jesus, to be able to, uh, to frame him, to be able to catch him so that they can accuse him of something that he's, he's really not guilty of. Uh, they really hate Jesus. Um, Jesus, however, came to offer salvation, to show that God loves the sinners. Uh, Jesus didn't want anything to stand in way of his ministry. Notice that he didn't worry about these accusations. He had come to bring the good news and he intended to fulfill, to completely fulfill his mission regardless of their effect on his reputation. You know, it's certainly true here that there's wisdom in separating from people that can lead you astray. Um, it's never a good idea, for example, to hang out with gamblers or people that rob banks, right? A teenager whose friends are druggies is more likely to be a druggie uh, as a result. I, I remember very well being a parent of, of teenagers. My, my children had grown up in the church, and they were good kids, and typically their friends were people from the church. However, my daughter especially wanted to broaden her horizon. She wanted to experience new things and constantly was pushing us to extend her boundaries from what we felt was a safe place. I remember her coming to us and wanting to go places that were at the time off limits to her and spend some, spend some time with people that uh, we thought might not be a very good influence on her. And now she was a church girl and she knew the Bible. Uh, she said once, she said, Jesus is able to go and spend time with sinners. Well, that was pretty wise. I smiled and I said, yes, Jesus was able to do that because he had more of an influence on them and then they did on him. But that wasn't the case for my daughter. Her rules didn't change. So, of course, we want to separate our children from the, from the wrong crowd. We do the same thing to ourselves. We, we try to be careful about where we go, where we let our eyes uh, take us. Um, but what we're, not, what we're talking about here really is the mission of Jesus and the mission of the church. The, the, Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Uh, we need to think of our churches as hospitals for sinners rather than an oasis for the privileged, uh, the members, the, the few rather than the many. Jesus had, Jesus had only the right intentions, but Jesus also had the right effect. You know, when, we, when he associated with the sinners, he didn't become like them. Jesus was not defiled. In fact, the opposite 
actually happened if you read through the New Testament. Jesus moves through the crowd and instead of Jesus getting defiled, everyone who t touches him gets more of Jesus, right? They get healed. Uh, they become more like Jesus. Uh, I see a kind of holiness that does not get defiled. It actually makes the person who touches him more holy. It's his holiness that's actually contagious. You remember the story of the woman with the, the flow of blood. The Bible says that she had had this condition for, for 12 years. And, and what that means is that, is that she was continuously unclean. Unclean means that people can't touch her. They can't come close to her. Everywhere that she went, she was unclean. But she is determined to see Jesus and to be able to touch him and, and to be healed. And she does that. She comes up behind him and she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment. Immediately, Jesus realizes that something has happened and he says, Who touched me? Who touched me? And, he, and his apostles turn to him and say, What do you mean who touched you? You're, you're full of a crowd of people. But he's, Jesus insists. He said, No, someone touched me. The woman knew it was her and basically came to her and said, It was I that touched you and I was healed. You see, she touches Jesus, but instead of Jesus becoming defiled, she becomes healed. Jesus' holiness is a powerful holiness. It's a holiness that makes others clean. So that was Division 1. Let's go to Division 2. Division 2 is the actual parable of the lost sheep. Jesus tells this parable about a shepherd uh, who was taking care of a hundred sheep, which by the standards of the time was a, was a pretty good-sized flock. Not unmanageable for one shepherd. He might have an assistant, uh, but not a small flock either. It appears that he was looking for the flock himself, and he just all of a sudden finds that one is missing. Well, how did he know that one is missing? Most likely, we're told, especially by, by the, the, the historians, that the shepherds would count the flock at night. It's kind of where we get the counting sheep at night. It's where we get that, that phrase. The, the shepherds would count their sheep at night. And as a result, they would know exactly that they had all that they, they all of their all of their flock. So the shepherd is counting, and he finds that one is missing. And then Jesus says this: He says, "What man of you does not leave and go after the one that is lost until he finds it?" Now, to the people, the people that were listening to Jesus, uh, this is an obvious question. It's it's a rhetorical question. Of course they know that. They see they they know that the shepherd is going to go after the one that's lost because the one that is lost is just wandering around and is completely defenseless. Now now for us we don't understand sheep, nor do we understand shepherding. And I and I've heard it often said, uh, but wait a minute, why do you leave the other 99? What about the 99? Why don't you? Why wasn't the shepherd concerned about the 99? But we missed the point. This parable is not about the 99, it's about the shepherd going after the one. Well, we can assume that the 99 are already in the pen, or maybe he left somebody in charge of the 99. Uh, that was not the concern at the time. The concern was the one that was lost. What this parable emphasizes is that the cares, that the shepherd cares for the lost and begins to search for, search for the one lost sheep. The missing sheep is his priority. So the point is that the lost sheep receives a very special attention over those that are already safe. Notice these beautiful words in, in verse 4 that says, The shepherd searches and searches until he finds the animal. He doesn't give up. He looks everywhere, into every hole, behind every bush. He's not willing to give up until he finds the lost sheep. 
This reminds me of what is said about Jesus just prior to Passover, just prior to going to Calvary, just prior to going to the cross, to be nailed to the cross and die so that he would pay for the sin of the world. John 13, chapter, uh, John chapter 13, verse 1 says this, It was just before Passover. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were not in the world. He loved them to the end. See, that's, that's Jesus. Uh, you know, a sheep apart from the shepherd is defenseless and in grave danger. This is how Jesus views any person apart from him. That person is in grave danger. That person is lost. How is he lost? Well, in many ways. Our sinful nature separates us from the Holy God, leaving us exposed to danger, exposes us to falsehood, to, to darkness. The shepherd in this story, remember, is, is Jesus. The shepherd doesn't despise his straying sheep. With a heart of compassion, Jesus values every sinner. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. That's John 6, 39. The parable of the lost sheep also illustrates Christ's attitude towards the saved sinner. Uh, this parable gives no indication of the shepherd that the shepherd punishes the sheep for straying, but instead he hoists the sheep upon his shoulders and takes the sheep home. Uh, have you ever had a look for a lost child? I have. Uh, the only thing we can think about is that the child is lost. The child is possibly in danger away from us and we do everything we look everywhere to find the child sometimes when we find the child the child will start to cry because he or she thinks that they're in trouble that they'll get yelled at for wandering away likewise jesus for G jesus searches for the lost he knows we are in danger away from his protection and care and he searches for us when he finds us there's no rebuke and there's no punishment, just a welcome as he carries us back into fellowship with the Father. Division three, the joy in heaven. You know, finally, the parable of the lost sheep offers an amazing peek at the reaction of those in heaven. The parable concludes with these words. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 just persons who need no repentance. Imagine that. Heaven rejoices when one sinner repents and returns to fellowship with God. Since the beginning, God has been the good shepherd who rescues his lost sheep. When Adam and Eve were hiding in shame because of their sin, he sought them out. Yes, he disciplined them, but he promised a res rescuer. Until Jesus' death for their sins, he forgave them by faith and covered them with animal skins. God still reaches out for the lost to cover and recover them through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me close today by bringing to mind the words at the end of this parable. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Here, it's, it's very important to understand the meaning of repentance. What does repentance mean in the Bible? Being sorry for one's sin is not the basic meaning of repentance. It does involve an acknowledgement of sins, but that's not the primary idea. Uh, the Greek word for repentance is made up of actually two Greek words, meta, to change, and etnoia, which is the mind, to change the mind with regard to sin. That's repentance. 
just as the good shepherd uh, goes searching for the lost sheep, it is God that is active in the process of the true repentance of the sinner. The Bible teaches us that true repentance, like all good things, is actually a gift from God. God gives us kindness, His mercy. He searches for us and gives us His mercy. Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? While repentance involves both a fundamental change of our mind about sin and a change of heart towards um, uh, fellowship with God, uh, it's really impossible to have true repentance without God's assistance. It's, it's the power of God that changes us and enables us to live in a whole new way. In a righteous way. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things of are passed away, all things are made new. You have a whole new attitude towards life. The way you look at things is new. The way you think is new. The way you behave is, is totally different. And this parable is telling us that all of heaven rejoices when that happens. When one of the lost comes home comes to Jesus and is made new. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that it's, it's your gift. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.